Good morning to each of you. Glad to see you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans, the book of Romans, the very first chapter. So we're in Romans chapter 1 this morning. Hi, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Listen as I read for us the Word of God, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that they have been that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. And creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the loss of their hearts to impurity, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the, cre- the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever, truly. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations. For those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, I come this morning as a preacher of Your Word and and I ask for help. Lord, this is a difficult text just given the thick content of it and how well it is written makes it real hard though. For us to make sense of the deep things going on. And so I pray for help there. 
But Lord, I also admit that the topics it's talking about, they're not easy to talk about. They're really not easy to do in church and certainly not easy to do from a pulpit. But Lord, the broken culture that You described in Your Word is the broken culture we live in. And so, Father, I pray this morning that You would give Your servant help. As I try to make sense of what Your Word is saying, Lord, I beg that I not exalt myself over any other person as I know my brokenness is much. I know my need for You is great. And so I pray that would certainly undergird this morning's message. Father, I pray that You would help us to think better about these things by looking at Your Word this morning. I pray for those this morning who are in the thick of temptation like they've never felt it, who feel as if they have reached their end, that they will never stop doing the sinful things they're doing. I pray for them this morning. Lord, I pray that You will give them life and peace by looking at Your Word. I ask all these things to You, my Father, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, may be applied by Your Spirit. Amen. I entitled the sermon this morning, Broken, Yes. Unredeemable, Absolutely Not. At this point in our service, we, we come to the sermon, and as conservative evangelicals, we believe that this is an important part of the service because we believe that it's at this point that we hear from, from God through His Word. We believe that we, as born-again believers, are not of this world. Thinking of what Jesus says in John 17. But because of where we stand on this side of heaven, we are those who are in this world. And as such, we must think through the various cultural issues of this world that we are in. We don't want to merely react, pick sides, and form opinions. Instead, we want to hear from the Scriptures and ask God to give us wisdom on how to think and to, to think in ways that honor Him. So as Americans, and in particular as North Carolinians, we have been faced with the, with the issue of homosexuality. We have been given no choice but to be engaged by the issue, and we've been given no choice but to engage the issue. So let me offer some introductory remarks before we get into the text. First, let me warn you that we cannot adequately engage the issue of homosexuality without engaging the broader issue of human sexuality. And this is not a topic that many of us are but so comfortable discussing. But let me suggest to you that our culture has no problem discussing these things. We cannot remain silent on sexuality because the Bible does not remain silent on sexuality. In fact, the Bible speaks quite often and quite clearly concerning human sexuality. So you'll notice as we address the issue of homosexuality this morning, our text will demand that we address the broader issue of all human sexuality. Second, we should note that this issue is not a new issue in human history. 
And as such, Christians through the ages have been dealing with the topic of homosexuality. What is new in our contemporary age is the attempt to reconcile homosexual activity with the Scriptures. That is, within the last century, there have been various attempts to argue that homosexual activity is not forbidden by the Christian Scriptures. I do not intend this morning to engage each one of those arguments. I will tell you, if you are interested in those, if you have questions about those, I would more, be more than happy to sit down and walk you through various ones of those or hear your questions at a later time. To be honest, I don't find these arguments convincing at all. I've heard them. I've read them. I don't find them convincing. I concur with Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in New York City who I think has summed it up nicely when he says there is not widespread division over what the Bible says about homosexuality. There is not widespread division. All three branches of Christianity, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant, agree on at least four things. One, that every mention of homosexual practice in the Bible says that it is wrong. Two, that it is specifically prohibited in both the Old and the New Testaments. Three, that it does not reflect the prejudices of the day. It cuts against the views of ancient cultures. And four, that the whole arc of the Bible begins with a heterosexual marriage, Adam and Eve, and ends with the vision of one, the wedding feast in the book of Revelation. Third introductory comment. I think it's real helpful that we admit that we tend towards one of two unbiblical extremes on this issue. Some of us lean towards the extreme of an insufferable reaction to those who either openly struggle with homosexual desires or who have all out embraced the lifestyle. This view is often voiced in terms of how we need to deal with them where the we stands for all the normal people. Unfortunately, such a view has been espoused even within our own state from pulpits within our own state and from Baptist pulpits in our own state in recent days. And unfortunately, YouTube stands as witness to this. That's one unbiblical extreme. On the other end of the spectrum, many of us tend towards an unbiblical extreme of arguing that how other people want to live is none of our business. Who are we to judge them? And therefore, we should just remain silent on the issue of homosexuality. And interestingly, how you, which one of these extremes you lean towards is probably dependent upon age. Although there are exceptions, folks who are older are going to tend towards the first extreme. While those who are younger will likely, I said there are exceptions, but likely tend towards the second extreme. I ask this morning that we let the Word of God speak to our hearts and educate us together. So, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17 and 18. I'm not ashamed, Paul says, of what? Of the gospel. Gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And all of us Greeks, that is non-Jews, say, Amen. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Recall that the word gospel means good news. So Paul says that the good news is that the power of God is there to save all who believe. In the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. He's saying in the gospel, in this good news, that God is righteous, it is revealed from faith from start to finish. Yet, this is good news because there is bad news, and I would add very bad news. And it is that bad news that the rest of the chapter deals with. Starting with verse 18. For the wrath, that's the anger of God, it is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what is he saying? He is saying that God is angry with all men and His anger is actually revealed from heaven so we don't have to question it. We can see it. In the rest of the chapter, He is going to give us ways we can see that God is angry and has judged us. Why? Because men have stood against truth. They have suppressed truth. God is angry at man because man has perverted the truth of God and lived wickedly. Verse 19. For what can be known about God, it's plain to them, he says. Why? Because God has shown them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So in creation, they are without excuse. What is Paul saying? Here Paul argues that man cannot claim that he's ignorant of God. Why? He says you can look at creation, all of man can look at creation, and they can deduce two things. Number one, there is a being who is much more powerful than I. And number two, there is a being who is very different than man. Namely, God. And as such, there is no excuse for any man under heaven for not recognizing that God exists. 21, verse 21. For although they knew God, so he has already explained to us, argued for us why it is that they know God. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But what? But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. They exchanged, in 23, if you're going to circle or highlight a, t- a verse in this passage, do highlight this one, circle this one, underline this one. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So although man knew God, he ignored God. And instead of worshiping God, turned his attention towards that which God created. He turned his attention towards the creation. God intended man to look at his creation. So he intended this relationship. Man looks at his creation. They're what God has created. And man says, unbelievable. And he worships God. That was the relationship. But instead, man kept his eyes purely on the level of creation. He ignored the Creator. Paul says, God made men to love God. And man responds by not even acknowledging who God is. He responds as a perverted lover of God. 
He thinks he's being smart, says Paul. He's being a fool. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Now, you're going to see an exchange, uh, uh, a series start here. There's three major series. It's basically going to say, man exchanged worshiping God for worshiping creation. And because man wants to do an exchange, God in His judgment is going to do an exchange. And He's going to give us three ways that God gives an exchange to man. And that's, this is the first one. We'll look at all three of them together. The first two we'll spend 90% of the time on. The last one we'll spend about five. And then the last five percent for closing. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring. So He gives them up to lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Remember, he's talking here about all men, not just one group, all men. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed. Paul just stops and worships. Who is blessed forever. So Paul is describing why God is angry at man. That's the, and then he's going to go on to say how it is that he's going to judge them. So God is angry, and because of that, he's going to judge them. That's why we get a therefore at the beginning of verse 24. But notice in verse 25, he just repeats for us exactly what it is he's already said. He gives us the reason that God is judging man. Why is that? Verse 25, because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Isn't this exactly what he has said already? He's, he's just reaffirming it. All of this is happening because man did not look at creation and look to the Creator, but man stayed on the level of creation. So what happens? Well, what happens is because of God's anger, God responds by making man a perverse lover of creation. So I want you to catch that. Man is a perverse lover of God because man doesn't look at creation and love God the way that he was intended to, but he ignores God. That's perverted love. So God, in His judgment, makes him a perverse lover of creation. He says, if you want to be a perverse lover, that's fine. I'll make you perverse lovers. Why? In order to show man that the perversion of his relationship with God is deep. God hands man over to perverted way of loving the creation to show man that he has a perverted way of loving God. Surely, you've thought about sexual sin and sexual temptation and sexual crimes, sexual offenses, and thought, this is so messed up. It is messed up. It is very messed up. Why? Because God has judged us for being perverse lovers of God. All mankind. When we look at how messed up we are sexually, 
we should be reminded how messed up we are in our love for God. And brother and sister, that should strike major chords of humility in your heart. If you're honest. Alright, this... These two passages and these two verses, there have been so many books, countless books, written about human sexuality in the last century. It's unbelievable. I'm submitting to you, there is more wisdom in these two verses than all those books combined. I want you to see this. But to do it, we're going to need to define a couple of concepts. First, let's define the term sexual disposition. Every person has a sexual disposition. Every person has a sexual disposition. A disposition describes how you are inclined to act. Prior to fall, man had a perfect moral disposition. That is, man was disposed or inclined to always act prior to the fall in a moral way. I, I, I like to use the example here of hitting baseball. A player can either hit the pitch fair or he can hit the pitch foul. And some players are disposed to hit it fair and some players are disposed or inclined to hit it foul. Right? If we use this analogy with moral disposition, then we can say that prior to the fall, we were all inclined to hit the pitch fair. Moreover, we can say we never hit it foul, because prior to the fall, man never sinned. Every pitch, every opportunity to act in a moral way, man always acted rightly. He always hit it fair. But after the fall, that changed. Paul says that every one of us now has a broken sexual disposition. That's what verse 24 and 25 are about. Which is part of the judgment of God because every one of us is a perverse lover of God. Obviously being changed by Jesus Christ and by the grace of Jesus Christ not left that way. We can see this immediate effect in the fall. So take our foreparents. Take Adam and Eve. They fall. What do they go do? They first hide themselves, but what else do they do? They quickly clothe themselves. Early on in the Bible, we see that part of the fall is a broken sexual disposition. Something drastically changed about how they thought about sexual things. So much so that what was fine with them and pure with them, they had to hide. Sex is not the problem. Sex is understood by people with a broken sexual disposition is the problem. I think it's real helpful here to step back and, to, and ask the question, what does a right sexual disposition look like? God created man before the fall with a right sexual disposition, and it had a glorious purpose. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that God created marriage to be a picture of the way that God loves His people. 
And He created sex and marriage according to Genesis chapter 2 to be a picture of the intimacy, closeness, safety, and joy of the marriage relationship. And so here there are a chain of pictures. It's a, it's a three-fold chain or three-link chain. God created sex as a picture of the beauty of marriage. And every time you see marriage, you see a picture of God's love, the beauty of God's love for the church. So walk through that. When you see sex rightly, you see marriage. And when you see marriage, you see God's love for the church. That's what a right sexual disposition looked like. But notice that without marriage, the chain is completely broken. There's no way to go from sex to the glory of God if there's not marriage holding them together. Sexual fulfillment outside of marriage completely severs the chain. It cannot bring greatness It cannot point to the greatness of marriage and therefore cannot point to the greatness of God. Pause and say, I really wish as evangelicals we would not have named our campaign as true love waits. But instead, I wish we'd have named it true worship waits. The problem with premarital sex is not primarily about tainting a future relationship with a spouse. The problem with premarital sex is primarily about tainting an eternal relationship with God. That's a side note. Back to what a right sexual disposition looks like. A person... Now just stop and picture this for a second. A person who has a right sexual disposition is inclined to only entertain sexual thoughts or engage in sexual actions inside of a covenant marital relationship. So we know that Jesus had a right sexual disposition because He was not affected by the fall. Jesus never sinned. This does not mean that Jesus did not have sexual desires. Deny that, you deny that He's fully human. If you deny He's fully human, you've denied the doctrine of the Incarnation. It only means that He never acted upon them. Think about this. He never acted upon His sexual desires. Why? Because He was never married. That is, He never entertained sexual thoughts. He never engaged in sexual actions because He did not have a wife. Every pitch he was thrown by way of sexual temptation, he hit it fair. He never hit it foul. Now, we can see the severity of what Paul is saying. Because of man's rejection of God, God hands every man and woman over to a broken sexual disposition. Which means not only are we capable now of hitting it foul, in regards to sexual temptation, but much worse, we are inclined to hit it foul. Make sure you see that distinction. It now doesn't mean just that we can hit it foul, but it means we are inclined to hit it foul. This might be a man who is inclined to look at a woman and entertain sexual thoughts about her regardless of whether he is married to her. Or this might be a woman who is inclined 
to draw the attention or sexual praise of a man, regardless of whether she is married to him. Or this might be a person feeding their sexual desires by themselves, whether this is through pornography or other activities. Given our broken sexual disposition, our broken inclination, we have to do work, every single one of us, to respond rightly to sexual temptation. This is what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1. All of mankind has been given over to lust of their hearts. We honor our bodies when we entertain sexual thoughts and engage in sexual actions within marriage. It's honorable for the body because that's how it was created. That there would be sex in marriage and it would point to God and He would get glory. But we dishonor our bodies any time we entertain sexual thoughts about somebody with whom we do not have a marital relationship with or engage in sexual acts with anybody outside of our marriage relationship, including our own selves. There is only one right sexual disposition. It's the one that Jesus had. There are countless broken ones. I submit to you there's as many broken sexual dispositions as there are broken people. It's interesting, when you go on a college campus, I can remember landing on the campus of UNC Charlotte years ago, and gosh, you can only imagine what it is now. And there were so many clubs built around, they didn't call it this, but this is what was going on, building clubs around broken sexual dispositions. So you had the gay and lesbian club you had the transsexual club, and you had the bisexual club, and the list went on. Thinking they were being smart, they became, Paul says what? Fools. That's not something to celebrate. That's supposed to point us to the fact that we have a perverse relationship with God, and outside of Jesus, it's not changing. So Paul goes on now to describe a specific category in the next verse. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What reason? The exact same reason he's given over and over. Because they exchanged worship of God for worship of creator of creature. For the women exchanged natural relations. And when it says natural relations, I'm so tired of liberal commentators hijacking this text. When it says natural crea- uh, relations, it means natural in the sense of how it was created. The beautiful picture we just pointed. That was natural. Man and woman together, given over by God in marriage to give glory to God. And not natural meaning what feels best to them. That would be a result of their broken sexual disposition. For their women exchange natural relations for those who are, those are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations. You see, Paul and God, they're so concerned with the picture. The picture is the natural picture. It's what is supposed to give God glory in our sexuality. And it's being given over. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving due penalty for their error. For the same reason, for being perverse lovers, 
God gives people, some people, open to a broken, over to a broken sexual disposition described as homosexuality. Let us recall, before moving forward, Paul has already diagnosed every person born under Adam with a broken sexual disposition. We all have a broken sexual disposition. Second, Paul specifically describes the broken disposition of homosexuality because of the level of its perversion. You've got to work backwards to see this, but hopefully what we've done will help you see this. First, recall the chain of pictures. God gives us sex is a picture of the beauty of marriage as a picture of the love for God's people. But there is no concept in the Scriptures of homosexual marriage. Since there's no concept for homosexual marriage, there's no right concept, context, for homosexual thought or actions. Not to mention the fact that homosexual Relationships are completely against the created order. Therefore, all homosexual thoughts and all homosexual actions are immoral. Therefore, there is no such thing as a right homosexual disposition. Every homosexual disposition is a broken sexual disposition. So Paul explains that the mere presence of such a desire is evidence that we are fallen People. You know, there's been a lot of research, a lot, and still continues in search of the gay gene. Or what we might say, using our language here, a link between bio, someone's biological roots and their homosexual disposition, sexual disposition. But notice in light of Romans 1, that's really pretty much unhelpful. I mean, I doubt many of you, like me, would be surprised if science were to come up with some new great discovery that tells us that many men are biologically wired so that they lust over women who are not their wife. I don't know about you, but I won't be shocked if I read that one. (laughs) This does not make it excusable. Jesus calls the activity I just described adultery. Right? Since you've heard it said that if you have sexual relations with someone outside of marriage, that's adultery. I say to you, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's adultery. Matthew chapter 5. My point is, Paul intends to argue that the presence of this disposition is evidence that we are fallen. Not give us an excuse because of it. Therefore, I don't get wrapped up in arguments about whether or not it's biological or not. I don't find these helpful at all. My response is, I'm pretty sure that a lot of my broken sexual disposition comes because of biological roots, but it's not excusable. I remember being in the health class in like the, I don't know, ninth or 10th grade, something like this. And we were going through, actually there are two classes that year that, that helped this. There's a class on U.S. history and we studied Native Americans and I saw how they gave over the state of Rhode Island for like a quart of whiskey. Keep that fact in your mind. The other fact is, we were in health class and they were going through different pathologies and different people's biological tendencies. And like, off the charts for Native Americans, along with every other metabolic disease known to man, was the top alcoholism. They're heavily prone to alcohol. And I remember thinking, 
If my forefathers gave away Rhode Island because they had trouble with alcohol, I'm done with it. I'm never touching it. And I remember being at parties, offered alcohol and thinking, stay to Rhode Island, brother, leave it alone. (laughs) Now, do I have a biological disposition towards alcoholism? It sounds like it. Would I be excused for giving away Rhode Island because of it? I don't think so. That's just a helpful maybe thought for you. That's my process. All right. Listen, I would be naive, incredibly naive, in a room this size in America to think that there aren't people here who are struggling with a homosexual disposition. I tell you that because I've been around seminaries where this is taught, they're training pastors, and I've seen men broken because they say, that's me. My buddy, my good friend, has been a professor for many years, taught Christian ethics for many years. He says, Tim, not a semester goes by that I don't teach a group of pastors on the issue of homosexuality and I don't end up with one man or two men or more in my office broken in tears because they're struggling. I recognize in a room this size, man or woman, somebody is struggling with this. So what do I have to say to you this morning? More importantly, what does the Word of God have to say to you this morning? First, realize you are not alone in possessing a broken sexual disposition. You're part of a room full of us. Whether we want to admit it or not. Second, remember that it is only sin. One only sins when he embraces the disposition. The mere presence of the inclinations are not sinning. It's acting upon it. Entertaining thoughts, engaging in actions. Third, at the same time, remember, it is a disposition. That means that is how you are most naturally going to react. And therefore, because of that, you had better do battle. Because if you don't do battle, you will act that way. Fourth, I want you to know you do not need to feel isolated or untouchable. Although it is true that all of us have broken sexual dispositions, it's also true they're not all equal. They are not. Like any other sinful disposition, some of us will have to do more battle than others. So some of you here this morning, and you're thinking, I don't know what he's talking about. I really don't have a lot of sexual temptation. Well, good for you. Alright, that's great. Not all the rest of us, me included, are there. So, if you're listening and going, I can't relate but so much, well, be in prayer for the brothers and sisters like me who can. Who can say, I do struggle with sexual temptation. So, when ask, and back up, I want our church to be a place where people who struggle with a homosexual disposition can come and do battle. And have brothers and sisters who get in the trenches. So I ask the question, Tim, does your church welcome homosexuals? I want my answer to be, my church welcomes every sinner. I know because they welcome me. 
But my church loves me enough not to leave me in my sin. They get beside me and they do battle with me to overcome my sin. I welcome the opportunity to sit down with any of you, any person who is struggling with a homosexual disposition. I want to listen. I want to pray for you. I want to fight with you. I want that to be heard from the pulpit. I beg you, brother or sister, do not listen to the world that tells you you are your disposition. The world is going to tell you to embrace this disposition because that is who you are. I refuse to call you a homosexual because I refuse to be called a person of of heterosexual sin. I am, my name is Tim and I'm redeemed by Christ. My name is not heterosexual sinner. I'm so thankful for the Gospel. Do not let the world tell you you are your broken disposition. But hear the words of Paul. In 2 Corinthians 5, let these land on your ears. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. The new is come. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to Himself. People with homosexual dispositions included. Not counting their trespasses against Him. Did you hear that news? Entrusting to us, church, listen. Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, saying to a lost and dying world, you come broken sexual dispositions and all. Making God's appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin. Oh, praise God, so we can become the righteousness of God. The Gospel is true. And because it's true, you need not, any of you, embrace a broken disposition. Not because you're not broken, but because Christ wasn't broken. The good news of the Gospel is the astounding news that the only one of us who is ever not broken took on the pain of the trespasses of all of us who are broken. God has reconciled us to Himself and therefore we are standing ready to be reconciled to God. In closing, you see, and we don't have time to look at the details of 28 through 31, but what you're going to see there is one more set of broken dispositions. These aren't sexual dispositions like the first two. These are more attitudinal heart ones. And let me tell you, you will be diagnosed there, brother or sister. I am. You go there and read that list, and if you cannot find 
a heart attitude that matches yours in that list, you need to find somebody who knows you better, to be honest with you. So that's the third way. He gives us over to broken, heartfelt dispositions. But look at verse 32. We'll close with this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Every man knows this isn't right. This is not right. Not only do they do them, but they give the approval to those who practice them. Notice that one of the marks of man's broken rebellion against God is his desire to approve of others' broken rebellion. Is God's Word not so relevant? Not only does our broken world want to feign ignorance as to the fact that this way of acting or living is against the Word of God, but they stand ready and eager to approve of those who embrace it. Let us love each other enough not to approve of our broken dispositions. Let us engage in the very hard work of Christian community. We call that church. As one person cleverly articulated much better than I, church is not a museum of saints. It's a hospital full of sinners. If you find yourself falling into any of the categories at the beginning of either disdain for people who struggle with this disposition or who have embraced it, or if you find yourself following the category just approving of it, I pray this morning the Word of God has helped you. It's helped me on thinking on this. I hope like me, you've been challenged. I hope this helps you think better about your own broken sexual disposition. The first step is honesty. Let me say this and and, and we'll close. I don't care if it's a homosexual broken disposition or a heterosexual broken disposition. Especially if if, uh, you are a young man or young woman in this culture. But everybody, if you don't have a plan in place in your life To fight this, then let me state categorically, do you have a plan in place to be defeated by it? I want it to be heard from this pulpit. I do battle with this. I want to be part of a community who openly battles together. It will scare the evil one to death. Let's close. Father, laid myself a little bare here this morning. <laughs> Been honest. And not like you don't know. I'm a member of the human race who has fallen. And therefore, I'm a member of the human race who has a broken sexual disposition. Lord, I want to be a church 
that welcomes others and does battle. But God, I beg you that we never be a church who is so wimpy not to love each other enough to not approve. Lord, I pray this morning, I know there are people who are hearing this. There are young men who feel trapped by their broken disposition. There are young women who feel trapped by their broken sexual disposition. There are older men and older women who have been struggling for years. I pray, by the grace of God, You will let us free this morning. So, fathers, we take time silently, just quiet before You. I pray that You would do Your work for a couple of minutes. Father, thank You for the opportunity to be with my brothers and sisters this morning. Thank You that You've given us Your Word to direct us. Thank You that You love us. And God, thank You for the cross. It is our hope. It is where we cling. Pray that Your Word would have done Your business this morning. We ask all these things to You. Amen.